everyone. Welcome to Truth Nation. My name is Bill Bodner. Right there across from me, the chief, Mark Garrett. Mark, what's happening today? How are you? I'm freezing for some reason. I'm cold. I'm cold in my studio here, but I guess it's better than sweating like a pig. That's the, hey, if you're in northern Maine, that's what the... Oh, wait a minute. You're not in northern Maine. I've never heard someone... Well, I guess... Hey, it's wintertime. We can be cold in Florida. We can be cold in California. We can be cold yeah. everywhere. Mark, today, American Nightmare, very aptly named, right? It's a documentary that came out earlier this year. True story. If you live in California, as we start to, un if you lived in California for, say, the past, I don't know, eight years, nine years, once we start to unpack this story, you'll say, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's likely, even anywhere in the United States, you heard about this story when it took place. Written by Bernadette Higgins and Felicity Morris. They got the writing credits on it, although, as I said, it was a, a true story. Really well done documentary. It's the story of a home invasion and the kidnapping of a woman named Denise Huskins in this small town, or maybe not so small a town, Mark, huh? Vallejo, California? Yeah, it's a good, I don't know the numbers on it, but it's a good sized town in the north part of the Bay Area. It happened in 2015, and as we go through it, the crime itself, incredible, literally unbelievable. The law enforcement response, literally also unbelievable. And as much as this documentary and the discussion of it is going to cause you and I to be critical of law enforcement in, in a couple different respects here, there's a hero in this documentary. And that hero is a, a law enforcement officer. And that, I don't want to say that makes up for some of the things that happened earlier, because it definitely doesn't. It definitely doesn't. We'll get into specifics of how, cer if certain activities were, in my opinion, were done by law enforcement, or if certain investigative steps were taken, there could have been a significant amount of harm eliminated and a significant amount of trauma that Ms. Huskins could have avoided. So here's where the story starts, folks. It starts on March 23rd. It's 1.53 in the afternoon, and a young man named Aaron Quinn makes a 911 call. He says, and it's, it was interesting because it was just his, the tone of his voice, and this is a recurring theme in this incident because of a sedative that was used, but his tone of voice is very monotone. It's a very matter-of-fact 911 call. Most of the time, Mark, I'm sure, you're, you've heard 911 calls, and when it's what was a very traumatic event like this, the person's very excited, they're screaming, there's yelling. This was nothing like that. This was a very calm, sedated young man who called the police to say, my girlfriend was kidnapped out of the house last night. And police come and re respond to the house, and there's body camera video of them clearing the house and encountering him. And the statement he initially gives Mark, what, when you heard the initial statement, when you heard his description of events, now these are, what would you say they were? Late 20s, early 30s? They were two late. victims? Yeah, they were late. I know she was, I think, 29 years old. Denise Huskins was 29 years old. I'm not sure about Aaron's age, but in that area. Mm -hmm. So when, when you heard the 911 call, and... Obviously, you and I both know how the story ended up, but when you heard the 911 call and then you saw just the initial interaction with the uniform officers who came to the house once they talked to him, what were your first thoughts? Like, what was, what was the first thing that hit you about, about 
his description of what happened? Well, the first thing he hit me, Bill, was that I tried to put myself in his situation as he told the story. I'm thinking, I wouldn't be that calm. I wouldn't be that calm. That was my first impression that something doesn't make sense here. And being in law enforcement for all those years and being around traumatic situations, I've seen people react in these high stress situations. I've been in them myself and I've reacted certain ways and try to try have to stay professional, remain professional. And so that was my first impression that his, the way he reported the story didn't really add up to what at least I was used to as a cop and just as a grown man, as far as emotion and mannerisms. So did that, did that cause a little bit of suspicion on your part? 100%. Looking at it just straight, yeah, from, from a cop perspective or from a detective perspective, when I think anytime you encounter someone and the way they're communicating is not what your brain is telling you, or, or it's not what you normally see, or it's not the standard that you've become accustomed to. Anytime there's something outside that standard, I think a little light goes off and says, something's not right here. So let me give uh, a general description of what he said happened that night. And this is, again, this is the next afternoon. And by the way, on the 911 call, he was asked, the call was at 1.53 and the kidnapping took place oh, that very early morning hours. I don't know, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., I think, Mark. Yeah, it was, yeah, um, I want to say it was close to 12 hours or 14 right. hours after the incident. Yeah. So that was the 911 operator had the same response that you had, like, this doesn't sound right. And said, when did, no, basically, when did this happen? And why did you wait so long to call? Mm-hmm. And he said, I was tied up. And she said, well, when did you get untied? And he's like, just right now. So it was just really a strange thing. But here's what he said happened. And Mark, if I miss anything, please jump in and add it in there, because I think it's important to, to set the stage about the scene that this young man describes, right? Mm-hmm. Asleep in his bed with his girlfriend, early morning hours, three men storm into the bedroom and they're using like a strobe type flashlight, a blinking or a flashing flashlight, which that's very disorienting, right? There's even, that's used in a lot of tactical situations by law enforcement to disorient someone. So they're using this, according to him, this strobe type flashlight. They see lasers, laser sights, I guess the thought would be. A couple laser sights running back and forth around the room like there's weapons with lasers on them. The instruction is given to his, well, he's told to lie face down on the bed. His girlfriend is told to zip tie him, which I guess she does. She zip ties him face down. And they put these headphones on him and swim goggles that are, I guess, blacked out. And as far as he knows, then he's made to drink a sedative. They're telling him they're going to give him a sedative. They even take his blood pressure, which is which I thought was a little unusual. They put a blood pressure cuff on him. They take his blood pressure. And then his girlfriend is taken from the scene. And he, I guess he's, I guess he's brought into the living room at that point. And there's almost like a, they put with red tape, they put a big square on the floor and they tell him, they, they put a camera up in the corner I don't know if it was even a real camera, Mark. They never, yeah, I don't they never think really, that it was. They never really discussed it, whether it was or wasn't, but they put a camera up in the corner of the room and said, stay within this red square on the floor or we're going to kill her. And they leave with her. 
And he passes out from the sedative or he's whatever and wakes up later and calls the police. I mean, is that pretty much what you took? Did I miss any important parts of that, Mark, about the initial interaction or what he says happened in his house? Yeah, I mean, that that pretty much sums it up. A little finer point to it is that I, from what I remember, from what I read, I got plenty of paper here I can refer to, but he did get himself untied sometime well before he called 911, but he was concerned that camera was real and that if he called 911, if he left the square, that they were going to kill his girlfriend. At some point, he just made the decision that he just has to roll the dice and call 911. So that's the only fine edge I would put on there that he did wait some time before he could have called because he thought that it might end up getting his girlfriend killed if he did. You, you bring up a good point. So, so what happened was okay. two, two things then that I forgot. First is at some point during this kidnapping, this abduction, the individual said, hey, this was, we messed up. This isn't Andrea. Andrea is the one we wanted to kidnap. Denise Huskins is the, is the actual woman that was kidnapped. Apparently the intended victim was uh, Andrea. We don't know her last name. She was the ex-girlfriend of Aaron Quinn, uh, ex-fiance, as a matter of fact. That's, that's an interesting fact. So they, they came and got the wrong victim. Then as to why he, you're right, he did, when he woke up, came to, got untied, he said that he received an email from them and they wanted $13,000 in ransom money. And he checked with his bank and all he had available was 3500 And he answered them and said all he had was 3500 or all he could pay was 3500 And then after that, he didn't get, a response for, I don't know what period of time, but it was a long time, yeah. a, a long time. And he just said, screw it. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to call right. 911. Yeah. I think the total bill was, I think it was, I think it was 15,000 and they'd asked for $7,500 the first half of it. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was 13,000, but that's pretty close. By the way, as we'll find out later on, Andrea, the ex-fiance, she was a very busy lady. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Which at some point watching this thing, I thought every, at every turn, I thought the story can't get any crazier and it always does. Mm-hmm. So police start, police arrive, they take Aaron down to the station. They're interviewing him there. I think they make it very clear that it's not a, although it's a, it's a custodial interview, they make it clear that he's free to go. So technically he wasn't advised of his rights. They take all his clothes, bag him up. They do a DNA swab. I'm sure all that is consensual. As you heard the lining, the, I'm sorry, as you heard the line of questioning, what crime are they investigating, Mark, in your opinion? Vallejo PD, once they're talking to Aaron Quinn, when he gives them the initial story about three men in wetsuits coming in his house with no sign, by the way, there was apparently no sign of forced entry. Correct. When he gives this incredible story, what crime are the Vallejo PDs actually investigating in your mind 187 of the california penal code murder it very early on and when i'm watching this that they are they have already concluded that this guy has killed her and now there's waiting to find the body did now at least from what was shown in the documentary did it look like here's the issue and i think anybody that's might as well put this out on the table early anybody that's in law enforcement that's or in law enforcement, in a detective role or some type of investigatory role, even accident investigation, Mark, 
it's fine to have theory of the crime, a theory about what happened. But when you are a law enforcement officer, Mark, is it your job to prove your theory right? Or is it your job to solve the crime and correctly determine what happened? Well, it's the latter. Obviously, you're supposed to be an investigator supposed to follow the facts. The conclusion doesn't follow your assumption. You have to follow the facts. And, and let me, I, I thought about this, and I'm so glad that you said even in traffic accident investigation, mm -hmm. I just want to give the audience just a really clear example of what you're talking about. And this is a very low-level incident. I remember this is 25 years ago. I get a call of a hit and run. It's a lady in a small vehicle. Her husband happens to, or her husband or, or boyfriend happens to be an attorney. And she says that she was struck by a big rig. And the big rig kept going and she pulled over, she called. And there was a just very little damage on her car. It was a very minor act, almost a paint transfer, but technically it was a traffic accident, earth damage. And she had gotten a license plate of this truck, this big rig. And I, I, there was such little damage on there. I thought this could have come from any place and she could have claimed that this guy hit her, mm -hmm. right? Which way? It's not terribly uncommon that people are looking for somebody else to pay for their damage. I followed up, get a hold of the trucking company. Hey, do you have a truck? Well, we do have a truck out there. What do you know? Hey, we did have a tr truck out there about that time, that location. I drive about 50 miles to go examine the, the truck. And what I find is, it's a big rig. And this is the tractor part of it. It's three axle, 20,000 pound tractor and what i find is it has these very robust plastic fenders in front of the wheels about where this lady said that she got sideswiped but what lacked was any physical evidence on the big rig there was no damage whatsoever and this was just about two days after the point is this I didn't have any reason to disbelieve what this lady was saying was true. And I talked to her husband, who was the lawyer, things like this. And, hey, listen, Officer Garrett, we know this happened and blah, blah, blah. My wife wouldn't lie. And I said, I'm not saying she did. But when I couldn't substantiate that this vehicle, and the, uh, the driver I talked to goes, yeah, I was driving. I don't remember hitting anybody, which is totally plausible because this thing weighs 20,000 pounds. Her car weighs 4,000 pounds at best. Right. And there could have been a slight brush changing lanes. And the driver would have, of the truck would never have known it. I actually believed the woman driving the car. But in order to substantiate that this collision had occurred, especially with this vehicle, I needed physical evidence that would hold up in court, even in a civil, civil case. And I didn't have it. And I was forced to go ahead and put down that it's undetermined who hit the person's car. And I put in my entire report, my investigation or whatever. And that was the end of it. I give that three-minute explanation about you have to follow the facts, even sometimes if your inclination is at, at odds with the facts. Right. In the early stage of this case, they are not really, as much as they say they're investigating it as a missing persons case, I think they had a press conference and they said that really wasn't they were what they were doing. They had, well, I guess technically it could be, but really they were, they thought she was killed. They were, had cadaver dogs in the area. They were checking fields for a body. They flat out accused Aaron Quinn. They said, I know what actually happened. What actually happened is you had an argument. And here, the, the, let's not forget that in Aaron Quinn's statement to the police, 
he was incredibly forthcoming. I mean, he told them everything he could about his relationship, like any little issue they were having or any problem they were having. And their theory became that she was breaking up with him and he didn't want her to be with anyone else and that he killed her. And that's what they were operating on. Now, again, a lot of times in a documentary like this, you have to be a little cautious because you don't know. They only, they're only documenting certain things, right? So mm -hmm. when he told them about this email he got, we don't know if they ever did any follow-up on the sender of the email. I have to almost think that they didn't, Mark, because there would've, that would have really blown the case open. You know? Well, it would, not only would it have blown the case open had they been able to do the forensics and find out where it came from. But to the contrary, if they found out that it came from Aaron, that would seal the deal that he was lying. Great point. Great point. It goes to back to what I started talking about a minute ago. As an investigator, you're paid for to find the truth, not to prove yourself right when you have a theory. A couple things that the terms that were used in this documentary and that I've heard and seen firsthand, I've experienced it, tunnel vision, and uh, confirmation bias. You have a theory as a crime, as an investigator, and you become so attached to that theory, that's really what you're trying to prove. You spend more time trying to prove your theory is correct than actually trying to solve the crime. And to me, it was very apparent that at least with Vallejo PD, that's what happened in the initial stage. And then there, at some point there was a transfer where it kept happening, but for different reasons. I, that's probably what I just said there. doesn't probably make a lot of sense, but we'll, we'll talk about phase two. What, what finally, so he's in this custodial interview or he's at the police station being interviewed and the FBI comes in to administer a polygraph test. I'm going to give you my thoughts on polygraph tests. Never take one, never yeah. take a polygraph test. And I'm going to explain why the real reason a polygraph test is used is the exact scenario we saw in this documentary poly polygraph is administered immediately and by the way they're not admissible in court a polygraph Correct. test is not admissible in court so so i'm not really sure of course i know why people do it they say well i have if you're truly innocent i, I have nothing to hide and then the cops tell them well if you have nothing to hide you'll take a polygraph don't take a polygraph Here, here's the game that was played by fbi with this polygraph exam and it is i'm not a polygraph examiner i'm not a certified polygraph examiner but we have certified polygraph examiners at dea and this is a tactic that is used almost 100 percent of the time mm -hmm. polygraph is concluded the chairs are pulled close together mark the, the examiner sits down in front of the person looks them in the eye and says you failed this test miserably you uh, you're obviously lying do you want to you're going to have to change your story uh you're betraying your family. All these people are coming out to support you and you're lying, et cetera, et cetera. And thankfully for Mr. Quinn, he realizes like, man, these people think I did it. I'm cooperating with them because I want them to find my girlfriend who was kidnapped out of my house in the middle of the night. And they're not doing a damn thing to look at her. They're spending time trying to prove that I killed her and I had nothing to do with it. So what does he say? I think I need a lawyer. And yes. that was probably, leave it to the F, by the way, I'm sure the Vallejo PD was real thrilled with, with the FBI guy. They, they had a witness that they've been talking to for, I don't know how many hours, several hours. And all of a sudden he's with them for a half hour and the person asks and for a, 
Yeah, that's it. The end of the interview, right? So, and people have to understand uh, if you're I'm sorry, Bill, but if you're not law yeah, enforcement, no. if you're not a lawyer, defense lawyers, best prosecutor, once someone utters that word, it doesn't have to be this formal statement. They just say, I don't want to talk anymore, or I think I need a lawyer. I think I need a lawyer. That is bulletproof. You are not able, at least legally, to ask any more questions at that point without representation, without a lawyer. And to go back on that polygraph, Bill, I agree with you. Don't take one. Again, mm -hmm. Bill and I come from law enforcement. We're out looking for the bad guy, but especially if you're innocent. But the truth is there's some times where the polygraph is going to, or Hyatt Patrol uses what's called a voice trust analyzer, especially for applicants. But the truth is there are times when the polygraph really indicates that you are being dishonest or there's certainly... There are changes in your physiological activity, which indicate dishonesty. There's no doubt about it. But in this particular instance, it was shown later on, this polygraph test was inconclusive. Right. It, the, the, the FBI agent was totally bluffing Aaron, totally bluffing him, trying to get a confession. Which is, and that's the point I was making earlier, where right. that's a very common tactic. And the, the goal of the polygraph is, well, they, they want to, like you said, they, they want to determine if there's going to be indicators of lying, but it's also to get you to, at the conclusion of the test, it's also to get you to come out and be more forthcoming about things that you have not disclosed. In other words, where we would see it all the time is on drug use. Let's say there was a statement, a question asked about drug use. The person said, I never used cocaine. And they actually, there was no sign of deception right? No sign of deception. But the person administering the test is still going to say, well, it, I think you were lying about this just to try to get them to come forth with some other behavior that they hadn't yet disclosed. And that, that's a big part of really what that test is about. So really the, that they had, they had a witness in, in a kidnapping case because of how they handled it. And, and I want to make that clear. Like, I understand the need to investigate all angles of a case. And obviously, the evidence at that time, I won't say it, I'll say it didn't make a lot of sense. Or let's say the story was incredulous. Let's just say that. It was a crazy story. That doesn't mean it's not true. And by them being so tunneled on what they think happened, they basically alienated this witness who was a witness to a kidnapping, who was 100% cooperative. They alienated him and made him pull back to the point where he was no longer speaking with them. That's, that's a correct. major, that, that's a major issue. And just to make that clear, I'll try to say it a little more clearly, the way they handled the interviews with him made him uncooperative in a case where he was the only witness as to what happened. That's and right. I, I think that was a major tactical mistake. Go ahead. You said it just right. In other words, regardless of of maybe an individual bias or jumping to conclusions, getting ahead of yourself. You have to remember right now, as an investigator, this person is all I have. Guilty, not guilty, completely innocent, somewhat com compliant, whatever it is, this is all I have. We don't have any other physical evidence to speak of. And it's not physical, it's a witness. We don't have any other evidence to speak of. And why would you alienate the only nexus to what happened that you have? And mm -hmm. I think what else we saw, and we could talk about it, obviously a little deep in a little more detail, 
is that we had a case here of, of groupthink. In other words, you had one person encouraging the other, and there was this kind of the safety in numbers. And again, not to dispel at all what you said about this was an incredible, incredible story. It was unusual. And just like we both admitted early on when we first saw him talking, calling 911 and the story, we both think, well, man, this is bizarre. I mean, have we ever heard anything like this in law enforcement before? So I don't want I don't want to pretend that I would have said, wait a minute, yes, this makes sense. Let's go investigate this. But at the same time, you have a duty to follow the facts and not just jump to conclusions without doing a proper investigation. As I think, as I think the story was unfolding, the kidnapper made the determination to, and I'm going to try to stay to the chronology that the documentary used, right? Because at one point we'll go back and give uh, Denise's perspective on what was happening. Right now, this is kind of Aaron's perspective, right? According to him, what happened. At that point in time, a reporter for the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, uh, his last name was Lee. I don't remember his first name. He gets an email from an unknown sender. Again, I don't know that there was any follow-up to see where this email came from, but obviously this e- it was super important to the investigation. It's a proof-of-life video. So now they know that actually Denise is not dead. She was not murdered. She's still alive. There's, and again, she, the audio of her, which they play in a documentary, her tone, her demeanor, it sounds a lot like the 911 call that Aaron made days earlier. Why is that? Because she was also drugged. And they talk about the drug cocktail that was used. She describes some timely events, so they know that it's, it's, at least from a time perspective, it's that day or the day before when this video was made. She says she's okay, but she's been kidnapped. At that point in time, the focus of the investigation then changes from Aaron being a murderer and killing her to a hoax kidnapping. They then immediately think that the kidnapping is a hoax, and I'm sorry, my jump, is that right, Mark, or no, but actually... Yeah, they start yes. believing that actually it was uh, Aaron and her conspired to create this fake kidnapping mm-hmm. thing. So still, even though there's a video from someone basically saying, I'm the kidnapper, there's really, again, in the documentary, no discussion of what follow-up was done with that. And the investigative focus now turns still to Aaron, but now Denise is roped into it, and it's a hoax kidnapping instead of a, a murder. Is that, is that yes. it? Yes. And by the way, and again... We want to be fair about this. Even I'm looking for his first name as well, but the reporter from the San Francisco Chronicle, Chronicle? I think it was. Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, Lee. In other words, even he, when he's interviewed, and I have an article here, a, a long piece about it, but even he thinks that the email that he got initially was a fake as well. In other words, he was questioning about whether or not this was actually real from what I remember. And, but later on, he changes, that changes. But yes, they definitely, yeah, they go from the, okay, he murdered her to now this is a conspiracy to commit a fraud here for whatever reason. And they yep. talk about that later on. So then March 25th, so what, two days later, two and a half days, yeah, two days later, 9.09 in the morning, where does Denise show up? She shows up on a security camera walking calmly down the street in Huntington Beach, California to her parents' house. 
And if I remember correctly, Mark, the father makes a 911 call, which I think CHP handled because probably it was made from a cell phone, I'm guessing. Is that why likely CHP makes Mm -hmm. a 911 call to CHP and says, hey, I just got a call from my daughter. She's at our house or she's going to our house. I guess she called from a neighbor's phone or something. Yeah, she called from a neighbor, the neighbor's apartment, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Okay. And, And Huntington Beach respond and take a statement from her and interview her. So just when you think. The story can't get any crazier. There she is, dropped off, walking down the street, 400 miles away, two days later. What do you, what, what do you think of the video of her walking down the street? I thought, man, that's crazy. And even just the, just how she just looked so, I don't know, like disconnected or I don't know what the word is. Yeah, she just no, looked really out of it. She did look out of it. And by the way, I had forgotten. I, at the time, I lived 45 minutes from Huntington Beach. And I had forgotten about the story until I watched the documentary. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Of course, mm-hmm. when I first saw the video of her on the news, I was like everybody else. Because at that point, really all I knew was about her coming home, saying she had been kidnapped. And, of course, I knew that this originated in Northern California. But at that point, again, I'm not the investigator. I don't have any facts at my fingertips. I'm thinking, man, this is a scam. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's no way. I mean... How often does a kidnapped victim ever get released? I mean, unless it's strictly for ransom, and that's pretty rare where that actually goes down smoothly. So I'm assuming the same thing, not only because she had been released, but like you said, Bill, but because of her demeanor, she was so calm, almost like, uh, like you said, detached, almost unaware of her surroundings, but certainly not of the demeanor one would expect a kidnapped a kidnapping victim to exhibit in other words maybe some exhilaration right hears running exactly you hit the nail on the head yes and so none of that was exhibited and this goes to at least to some point where it's, it's not defensive but it's understanding the mindset of these investigators because here i was in law enforcement i'm looking at it thinking the same thing again from the little information that i had but very unusual her demeanor so that, about 12 hours after she was released. Now, this is the part that I really, especially you with your, I know you have a, a PIO background with the Highway Patrol. That was one, yeah. one of your duties at one point. So I, I want to ask you about this. About 12 hours after she was released, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, they, Vallejo PD held a press conference, and they said they couldn't substantiate any of Aaron Quinn's statements about the abduction or anything. And side note there, they didn't, I'm not sure what they even tried to do, which if you're going to make a statement like that, probably you should get into detail and back it up a little, or just don't make that statement. At this press conference, Lieutenant Park said, and this is a quote, Quinn and Huskins plundered valuable resources away from this community. And basically he was saying on TV, that this was an elaborate hoax kidnapping. Yeah. Why is a law enforcement agency making that announcement? And Mark, this is before they even spoke to her. So she got released. Huntington Beach PD talked to her. She was a little hesitant and not 100% forthcoming with Huntington Beach PD. I can understand that because she was basically told, we're going to be watching you. We're going to kill you if you say certain things about... Or, or your family. 
or your family. family. So she was, she had just been released when they talked to her. She was a little probably hesitant to come to tell the whole story in detail right at that moment. How does Vallejo PD hold a press conference without ever talking to her and say that the whole thing is a hoax, Mark? Yeah. Well, see, this is great, Bill. I mean, that you're, that you, you touched on this because you're right. I spent a lot of years at the PIO for the Highway Patrol, and I had to talk about many investigations that were going on. But this one here, this is such a breach of protocol from a public information point of view for a number of reasons. Number one, the Vallejo Police Department's convinced that he occurred here now. So whether this is this is a hope, there's no reason to go on television at that point and say, other than beyond, we are aware that Miss Huskins has been found. This is an ongoing investigation. We need to get our facts in line, and we will go to where the facts lead us. That would have been totally appropriate. But now they are telling the public that they believe that everything they've been told by Aaron, not Denise yet, because she said they haven't talked to her, is all fabrication. So what they've done is they've pigeonholed pigeon themselves into a position without completing investigation. Like you said, without ever talking to one of the people whom you believe is a suspect, you're going to say, now we know that she engaged in this hoax, that she's committed a, a criminal offense. It was completely out of bounds. So you really undermine any credibility you have at that point as an objective investigator. That's what you've done right there. You undermine your own agency by doing this, your own credibility. So it's one thing when you are ready to bring charges based on facts you have. If you have actual proof, to the best of your ability, the best of your knowledge, then you can go forward and say, listen, we understand this is a very media-intense investigation, and we want to bring you the facts as we know it. And again, with, without undermining our investigation, but for the facts that we have at our fingertips, we believe X, Y, Z have happened. And we'll take our information to the attorney, to the grand jury, whatever it is. But to say this before you've actually interviewed a key figure in the investigation wrong yeah here's what else that does mark well you, you mentioned one thing it undermines your, your own credibility so later on if you were to and, and again they, they were it was tunnel vision it was confirmation bias later on you'll see the tables turned and some facts come out and we find out this it, it really a crime really was committed how can they prosecute that crime and there's some question as to if there's additional suspects still outstanding and really, the, the, the Vallejo Police Department basically neutered themselves by the way they handled this. They made themselves ineffective in any future investigation by coming out that soon and with such, with such confidence saying that it was a hoax. And um, boy, there was another point I wanted to make too. How about the public? So if someone out in the public maybe had information or saw something strange that night or something else when they've just basically told the public there's nothing to see here this was a hoax go back to your business now was it because 
What was there more to it? Was it because this was a extremely scary crime in their neighborhood? Did they not even want the public to believe that in their community, people could storm into a house without a sign of forced entry, grab someone and kidnap them out of a house? Did they just not want the public to believe that was even a possibility because it would make them look bad as a police force? Is it, or do you think I'm reading too much into it by going down that roadmark, or was it just sloppy, maybe inexperienced with handling a significant case like this or sloppiness? Well, that's a good, good question, Bill. And I'll be honest with you, I, I hadn't considered that possibility. It is a possibility. But of course, as we get into this, as you watch the documentary, as you read these various articles we have in front of us right now, you find out that similar occurrences were a fact in that neighborhood. And Vallejo PD knew that going back a number of years. Again, and not just one. Mm -hmm. So they were aware. Now, again, they're not putting two and two together. I'm not saying I would have either. But your point about where did they not even want the public to believe that such crimes were possible on Mare Island there in Vallejo, that's quite possible. But they did know, which is, I guess, even worse, if that was their goal, they did know that these similar crimes had occurred. And when I say similar, talking about peeping toms, being, mm -hmm. breaking and entering, things like this, mm -hmm. had occurred in that neighborhood over several previous years. Again, I don't know if that was their goal. I don't know if that was you know, on their mind about uh, quashing people's fears about these types of crimes right. in the neighborhood. But I do know this. They did have records of these occurrences happening before. Yeah. That's, it's a three-part three series, three 45-minute episodes. And episode one is basically from Aaron's perspective. Episode two starts basically from... Denise's perspective, and we won't get into, you know, the same type of detail with that because she tells basically the same story that he does. What's a little different is obviously she's going to say what happened to her from the moment she was wrapped up in the bedsheet, taken out of the house and put in the trunk of her boyfriend's car. He drove somewhere. I don't know that there's ever been a determination of where, but he drove somewhere where he dumped that car and moved her to a white Ford Mustang. And then from there, he drove her up to a very isolated part in the mountains of California. Later, we learn that it's the South Lake Tahoe area, I think. Yes. And a couple of different things here now, which are really painful to even talk about. First, she was raped at this location. The, the suspect told her, I'm going to have to... And, and the way he had this discussion with her, Mark, it was very similar to the discussions he's had with some of the prior victims of his exploits on Mare Island, right? Just weird interactions with women. But he said, hey, I'm going to have to rape you and I'm going to have to videotape it. The reason I'm going to do that is because if you go to the police, I'll just put this video out and this will prevent you from doing that. So she's raped and by the, the first way, time. To, to, yeah. to, to clarify that, in other words, but he told her it has to look consensual. Right. That you were here, your own free will, that you engaged in sex with me on your own free will, and this is the tape I'll play if you ever go to the police. One thing, Mark, that I don't know, hopefully you caught this, and, and we'll see if, it, if you have any thoughts on it, is so after that first rape at this isolated cabin in South Lake Tahoe, she talks about him saying, the captor, 
we haven't named him yet, him saying that his associates are coming over the house. And she says she hears them outside having a heated conversation about yes. something. Doesn't yes. really know, I, I don't know, or didn't get into detail about what it was, but hmm. definitely remember originally they both, Aaron said there was three people that came in the house or that he, I, I think said yes. there was three people. He thought and then now, people. right. And now uh, this guy, her captor is meeting with two people outside his house. Uh, it makes me think there's multiple people involved in it. Anyway, comes back inside and tells her that he is going to rape her again. Is that kind of the, uh, yes, the, the right he progression comes, he, of things? Yeah. The second time I forget the time frame between the first rape and second, but he does come back in and says, Hey, I've talked to my colleagues and I have bad news. Uh, we have a problem. That was his, that we have to do this again because it wasn't convincing that you were here doing this voluntarily and things like this. And that's why they had to do it again. If I, if I remember correctly, I did pick up on that bill on the multiple suspects and multiple voices. I think later on Aaron Quinn's interviews, I think he said that he may have been wrong. In other words, he may have been fooled to made to believe that there were multiple people with the multiple lasers. That was one of the things where he thought, mm. so obviously you can use that with two hands, things like that. And I wondered about this as well. Right. So the conversations took out, uh, took place outside of, of the bedroom, outside of whatever room she was being held in, maybe outside of the house. So I don't know if, if this suspect was actually speaking in different voices, disguise his voice and go back and forth to make it sound like there are multiple people. But as far as we know, there's no evidence that there are multiple people involved. Got it. Hey, I'm going to tell you now the most painful part of this whole watching this. And, and hey, as a law enforcement, listen, between us, Mark, 60 years plus of law enforcement life, parts of this thing made me really uncomfortable with how it was handled, right? Really uncomfortable. And this was what I'm going to discuss now is probably what I think is the biggest blunder. And I, again, interested to see if you picked up on this. When the police were interviewing him in Vallejo, they put his phone on airplane mode, mm. right? Yes. So what had happened during that time, which he didn't know because there was no missed calls, right? Because the phone was in airplane mode. It's not like the phone rang and was not answered. Uh, the kidnapper called twice, called his phone twice. And because it was in airplane mode, the police took it from him, put it in airplane mode. Because that happened, that bit of evidence was missed. Now, yeah. if he was allowed to have the phone there, if he was allowed to answer the phone, if he said, hey, I don't know who this is, let me answer this. Within minutes, they could have identified the location where he was calling from. And the second rape of Denise Huskins would have been prevented with it is painful. a very basic tool. And Hey, I know from my law enforcement life, one thing we focus on a lot is telephones and exploitation of cell phones. Oh my goodness. That's the one thing that really made me just really disappointed in how this is handled. When you realize that a very basic in a kidnapping case, you're going to cut off uh, a means of communication that the kidnapper might use to contact someone like that just makes mm -hmm. no sense right that just makes no sense whatsoever it's an excellent point it, i'd forgotten about that but it's an excellent point but in other words they just you have a tool right there mm -hmm. let the phone ring let yeah. it go and by the way you said hey who's calling you in other words yeah. 
This is just like investigation 101. So, so that was a huge miss on their part. I mean, the next thing is he tells her, the kidnapper tells her it's time to go home, right? Tells her it's time to go home and puts the goggles on her. Or actually, oh, he might have actually taped her eyes shut. I think he taped her eyes yeah. shut and then put sunglasses on her, drugged her again, put her out in the car and drove her down to Huntington Beach and dropped her off. By the way, for those of you who are not familiar, of course, you can Google it right now, but from South Lake Tahoe to Huntington Beach on a good day with like no traffic, it's probably a good nine hour drive. And I thought about that every time. I, and I assume I don't have any reason to believe that she wasn't in the trunk the entire time. Just that aspect of this torture by itself is mind boggling to me. Mm -hmm. That's just an yeah. ancillary note. He drops her off in Huntington Beach, and then that's where her side of the story kind of unites with, with his side of the story. They both obviously having experienced different parts of it. The, after the police and Vallejo hold a press conference saying that they plundered resources and that it's a hoax, then they interview her mm -hmm. the next day. And I just felt like, like that was super ironic. They're interviewing mm -hmm. her the day after they held a press conference saying that she lied. And she told, from what I saw, Mark, she told exactly, I don't believe she had even spoken with Aaron yet, if I'm correct about that. Not that I'm aware and, of. And I think she told almost the exact same story about the abduction that he did. Yeah. So when you saw the FBI then get involved in this, Mark, what did you think? Well, I mean, uh, disappointed is the I, I kind word that I can use. Look, we can go back to the initial involvement of the FBI in regards to the polygraph. Mm -hmm. But then we have a couple more FBI agents, too. I think two additional ones, if I remember correctly, that, that are involved and are interviewing, interviewing Aaron now, if I remember correctly. But one of whom, one of whom, you talk about, like you said, the story getting stranger and stranger had a previous involvement. Now, if you guys remember at the beginning of this podcast, we talked about a woman named Andrea. Andrea and Denise is the woman who was kidnapped, who was with Aaron when she was kidnapped. Denise and Andrea were co-workers at a hospital. Not only in the same hospital, but in the same unit. Andrea, like you said, Bill, is the former fiancé of Aaron, and there was friction between Andrea and Denise, which is understandable in the same unit. Mm -hmm. One of the FBI agents now in the investigation previously had a personal romantic relationship with Andrea. The idea that you would not automatically recuse yourself from the investigation because you actually have a personal involvement or had a personal involvement with a person who could provide maybe pertinent information to the investigation is absolutely mind-boggling to me. And people will say, well, maybe his boss didn't know to take a Your boss shouldn't have to know. Right. As a trained investigator, you should have more common sense than that to put yourself in that situation. That can completely muddy the waters with any evidence that you might garner from this woman, Andrea, the coworker. So that by itself, it it really it just about angered me that someone would be that so that that foolish uh, during the course of an investigation not to remove themselves from the the whole process because of that nexus to that potential witness. And, and worth noting, Andrea was interviewed by the police the first day. 
Yeah. She was actually taken to the Vallejo police station and interviewed by police the first day. So it's not like her involvement was not known. The police knew that she was the intended victim. They actually called her in to interview her and got into very specific detail about her relationship with both Aaron and Denise. And then for to find out that, at least according to the documentary, this FBI agent had a relationship with her and he was involved. And then he actually did an interview of Denise at the FBI. And by the way, Mark, I don't know, this is always the case. And having worked for the federal government, I've seen it hundreds of times probably. As the Department of Justice is always quick to go after local departments about transparency, you're going to get a consent decree if you don't do this, if you don't do... But meanwhile, in this case, guess what we saw in the documentary? We saw the videotape interviews of Denise. We saw the videotape interviews at Vallejo PD of Aaron. We saw the videotape interviews of Andrea, the intended victim. All we, But the FBI did an interview of Denise at their office. They have not released it. Right. They haven't released it. Apparently, according to the documentary, David, uh, the FBI agent's name, David, what was it, Mark? I have, I have it someplace. Yeah. Sesma. David Sesma. Yeah, there you go. Apparently, mm -hmm. the FBI agent, according to the documentary. Apparently, according to the documentary, he told her, hey, there's a lot of inconsistencies in your story. And again, this is, I get it. This is like interview tactics. The reality is there was no inconsistencies with her story. The two lawyers, her lawyer, now she had to get a lawyer. Aaron had a lawyer. Those two lawyers talked and it was the exact same story. It turns out they told. And I think that's pretty clear from watching the recorded interviews that are in this documentary. They told the same story. But again, the focus of the FBI, just like it was the focus of Vallejo PD, they had an idea in their mind what crime was committed, and it was basically the hoax crime. And you interview each of them separately to a crime, mm -hmm. whatever. You interview four witnesses, by the way, who all saw the same thing. You're going to get five different versions of what happened from those four people. Yep. It's just human nature. So yep. when you actually have two people, and at this point, Boyle PD knew it after they finally interviewed Denise after your accuser falsifying this whole story, they couldn't have had a more consistent bulletproof pair of statements. I mean, they just couldn't have. <laughs> and they should know. I mean, they should know from experience. You just, you rarely get very consistent witness statements, not because anyone's trying to be subversive or to lie to you. It's just human nature that people see things differently, hear things differently, smell things differently, and that's it. So when you have two people line up like this, that should have been red flags or whatever color you want to use in this instant, that mm -hmm. should have been warning signs that maybe their initial assumptions are not right. And she got threatened with, this part made me laugh, the FBI agent apparently told her, hey, it's a crime to lie to a federal agent. It's called a 1001 charge. That's what we call it. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a crime, Mark. I've never seen anybody get charged with that. I'm sure probably the stories, the stories that they told, uh, made sense or, or at least supported each other. And at some point you have to start, instead of trying to prove yourself right, see where the story takes you. Go after the story and prove or disprove the, their story, not your own theory. Now, hey, we already talked about it. To say that at every turn, this story got even stranger and stranger. This was the next turn, right? Yeah. The reporter, Lee, from the San Francisco Chronicle, and jump in, by the way, if I, miss, if I missed anything, I know you have a bunch of stuff on 
some I've got so much stuff here, but go of, ahead. Yeah. So this reporter, Lee, he now starts getting emails um, from someone that basically confessing to the crime. And this person confessing to the crime is upset because it's being called a hoax. And he's like, BS, this isn't a hoax. We're a, we've kidnapped people. And guess what? And, and by the way, he sent pictures. He sent yes. pictures of the tools used to accomplish the kidnapping. And he said, if the Vallejo Police Department doesn't apologize for calling this a hoax, we're going to strike again. And I think the quote was in this email, we're going to do the wrong thing for the right reasons. So here is someone now confessing to the crime, pissed off because the police don't think that this person actually committed a crime. And he's saying, wait a minute, I did this. I'm proud of it. And that just blew my mind. It did. I mean, again, you can't make it up, but here's the thing. No. That's when the reporter, that's when Lee said, wait a minute, this is real stuff. And if I remember correctly, you can back me up on this, but that's when he started believing this, that these emails that he was getting were actually real mm -hmm. and, and went to the PD with this. But to my recollection, again, I have it here. I probably should have highlighted it a little better. I have so many notes here. But at that point, Bill, I believe that the PD was still reluctant even with the information that the, the reporter brought them. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. They never, he said that he sent the messages to Vallejo PD and they never responded to him. Correct. So a newspaper reporter gets a confession to a crime with pictures attached of implements or, or tools used to commit the crime, according, according to the person who sent the email. He sends it to the local police who are investigating. Then they never even answer him. And again, let's call it what it is sloppy police work like you at that point it was very sloppy yeah yeah and now this gets to where i think you can jump in mark with some of the stuff that you have because i think it was 10 weeks so 10 weeks after denise huskins was released just to set the stage for this next next part of the story 10 weeks 10 weeks after she's released the newspaper reporter has gotten these confession emails etc and he's gotten a threat right these advise mm -hmm. the police of a threat that this person's going to do it again because unless there's an apology made to huskins of course there was never an apology 40 miles from vallejo in the town of dublin yep. there's a home invasion and a woman calls 911 and she's Basically, now this is a different kind of 911 call, Mark. This is more of the 911 call that we expect. She's locked in the bathroom. She says her husband is fighting with now. This is why I asked earlier about the potential of multiple suspects because I went back and actually listened to this a couple times. She says, My husband is fighting with them. Mm -hmm. My husband is fighting with them right now. And then she later says in the call, They have my daughter. Right. So it, listen, it could very well be, he was obviously, as we'll get into a little bit of his background, um, but he's obviously a very smart criminal and may have been using these tools to make it look like there was multiple people. But what happened at that house in Dublin was it, at least the, let's call him the kidnapper, the suspect in this case, the, the one that ended up kidnapping Denise, mm -hmm. gets into a house, tries to I guess that the thought was one of two things in the show. They said he was trying to tie up the parents or restrain the parents and then rape the 22 year old daughter. I'm not clear Correct. if that was it or if he was going to kidnap the 22 year old daughter. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I'm not sure which it was, excuse me, but you know what I think that's where he made his one mistake. He left his phone behind at that residence. Yes. 
it's it's interesting because, and I don't think of all the information I have here, I don't think that even the articles or investigation address an, uh, an important aspect of all of this. He knew about the ex-fiance, Andrea. He knew where she worked. He knew her name. This is with Aaron and Denise. He knew, he actually called, if I remember correctly, in this case here in Dublin, he actually knew, actually referred to the daughter, the 22-year-old daughter by name, I believe, in this house. Later on, it, it comes out that he had actually stolen a lot of personal information and he had hacked into credit cards or things like this, if I remember correctly. But he had a lot of information from a lot of different people whose homes he had broken into. What it doesn't say is actually how he did this and how he picked people out. It was just totally random. But clearly he knew about Andrea. He knew about this daughter. And it's just really important that we talk about that. In other words, early on, we talked about, oh, you were not the intended victim. It was Andrea. Right. And they don't talk about, well, how did they actually know about Andrea at the beginning? But he'd done this multiple times. But yes, he made a mistake in this hustle, this house in Dublin which again is in the Bay Area, it's in the East Bay, Northern California, that he dropped his cell phone. When the cops got there, the daughter said, oh, I don't recognize that phone on the floor. They picked it up. They called the number and who they actually call a, a recent number and they get the suspect's mother on the phone, if I remember correctly. And this is how things start now accelerating to solving multiple crimes, not just the one that we're focused on for this show. But... When they talked to the mother, they found out that this, her son actually has a cabin in where? South Lake Tahoe, mm -hmm. where Denise had ended up, it had been taken eventually. And you mentioned earlier on, Bill, about there's a hero in the story, and absolutely there's a hero. And I want you to talk, you can go ahead and talk about her, take it from there. Yeah, so as you said, they, they get this phone, they talk to the mother. The mother says he's living at this place in Tahoe. Now, this is Dublin PD, different police department. And to be honest, this is where they just do good. And I don't want to under I don't want to undersell what they did, but good basic police investigative work, right? They go to Lake Tahoe, they serve a search warrant at the place, they go in the place, they take the suspect into custody. Almost immediately, they searched the place. And by the way, it was the, the hero's name or heroine was Misty Caruso. Car Caruso. Oh, Car yeah, you know what? Yeah. Car oh, Caruso, uh, you're right. Car Caruso, a sergeant at Dublin PD. And mm -hmm. hey, the lieutenant asked her, hey, we're going to go out and look for this guy. Do you want to come with us? She goes with him. They serve the search warrant. They take him into custody. They have the documentary has body camera footage of that. And the place looks a mess. And she looks around the place and says, okay, something's not right here. There, there's more to this story. So she's, they find a, a white Ford Mustang there, which, by the way, Denise had said for some reason she thought she was put in the trunk of a Mustang at some point, just based on, I guess, the sound of the, the car sound. even or something like that. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. she was extremely helpful. As a cop, you dream to interview someone like that who's so helpful with detail. Mm -hmm. But what... Sergeant uh, Caruso finds is a lot of strange stuff, but a lot of the tools that were used in what turns out to be other kidnappings, or at least the, the kidnapping of Huskins. And one thing is this pair of goggles with the lenses like painted or taped over. So you, so they really let no light and you can't see. And there's one blonde hair 
in the kind of the elastic strap of the goggles. And really, that becomes this sergeant's, I don't know, duty. Let's say in her mind, it's her, her duty. Mission. To, her mission. There you go. It becomes her mission to find the victim that left that blonde hair behind. All Talk about no having nothing to go on. She has just a blonde hair, but she does, again, police work. She starts looking for similar crimes. She, I don't know, Mark, first, she's the one that actually puts, I think in, so they, the, the white Ford Mustang was a stolen car, by the way, that was Mark, CHP. The guy drove all the way to, all the way to Huntington Beach and back and wasn't stopped in a stolen car, but that's a story for a different time, I guess. Uh, when they actually call, when they call the registered owner to return the car, Somehow, this detective is speaking to the registered owner, and he says, oh, you've heard about, the what was the name, the Mare Island Creeper, or the Mare yes, Island Peeper, creeper. or something like that? Creeper. I think it was the you've, Creeper. Yeah, you've heard of the Mare Island Creeper, and she says no, and he tells the whole story to her now, again, about... Bill, I hate, I hate to interrupt. No, go. Say that again, because you're, you reminded me of this, and I, when I watched the documentary, I said, oh my God, it was the owner of the stolen car who said, by the way, you've heard of it, right? <laughs> by the way, this is in Vallejo. Mare Island is yeah. in Vallejo. So it was this Dublin detective returning stolen property to someone in Vallejo, and that citizen says, oh, you know, there was this creeper here or peeper on the island, and et cetera. Vallejo PD never made that connection. And right away, she said, ooh, there's a connection to this and what and what happened. And also there was a couple other break-ins and attempted rapes. And when you hear the other stories, man, it's like this guy was a serial, I don't know, what would you call him? Obviously mental health issues, but yeah, I don't know it's... if a serial rapist, but you could see also, which I've heard, which I've heard is often the case in these things. Like something else that Vallejo completely missed, Mark, is the gradual escalation in yes. behavior of criminal behavior, right? Mm -hmm. First, the guy's peeping in windows, then he's going then he's going into houses and peeping from inside. Then he's actually going in and, I don't know, attacking people, restraining people. Then he's actually committing rape. Then he's mm -hmm. kidnapping people and taking them out. So there was this clear progression in uh, escalation of criminal activity that was taking place, completely missed by Vallejo PD in their own community. And what I appreciated about the interview with this sergeant from Dublin is, she didn't hide from that because we can't, right? Right. And she talked about calling Vallejo and then basically not answering the phone. Am I right about that? Like yeah, not getting get, back to Totally stonewalled. And finally, when she got through to them, they basically said, hey, we're not investigating that case anymore. Call the FBI. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And we talked about cooperation on other shows with, with law, law enforcement agencies. You know, when we get a call from, from an allied agency, Listen, because you never know what you never know what crime they're going to solve for you. You always want to be as open and as available, as approachable as possible. I know I always tried to be, and because I tell you what, one thing: one day you're going to need them. So the idea that this detective from Dublin PD pretty much had to let Vallejo Police Department know that there might be something in your own database, right, that would be relevant to this crime that you are accusing the two victims of being fraudulent, being a hoax, that could help you out here. She had to let them know eventually. 
And then when you go back and you look at the amount of information, matter of fact, this guy, this suspect, this kidnapper, this rapist, he was in multiple databases. Mm-hmm. Not only in Vallejo, but I believe it was up in Palo Alto, Palo Alto. with Stanford yep. University. Yep. So he was like a virus over a FI card, field information card, so to speak. And, and, and it, you know, with different flats, with different agencies. And it just seems like in any kidnapping case or any suspected ki- kidnapping case, any claimed kidnapping case or sexual assault or anything, one of the first things you do is you just start typing stuff into your computer to find out if you get any hits on similar behavior. This is just standard investigative technique, especially nowadays. This is not 40 years ago when you couldn't do that so easily, but now it's like right. going to Google. That's why when often people get stopped, whatever, the information goes to the computer, they were stopped for this, whatever, just on traffic violations, let alone being arrested uh, or being interviewed, being detained for certain violation, it goes into a database in order to help clear future investigations. Vallejo clearly did not utilize the resources they had at their fingertips. That's an excellent point because the reality is she connected her case to all these other cases, but they could have connected all these other cases just amongst them, just amongst themselves. Not even, I, I guess what I'm saying, Mark, is take the kidnapping of Huskins out of it, right? Take the kidnapping of Huskins out of it and just look at the other creeper, creeper slash peeper cases and the sexual assaults. The information was there to connect those crimes with each other. How do I know that? Because the Dublin detective did it. That's and right. the Vallejo Police Department did not do it. There was definitely more that could have been done. It just wasn't done. So I guess where the story kind of ends up is they, she calls the FBI, which I thought was a classic. And <laughs> the FBI's response is, hey, send us everything you got. We'll take a look at it. And thank God that she did not fall for that trick because most likely this, he, the defendant never would have been charged with this and really, it wouldn't have, the case wouldn't have been resolved. What happened was her, this is where leadership in the department gets involved. I applaud them for doing that. They set up a meeting with the FBI where they showed them the evidence. And guess what? One of the, it was actually toy guns he was using or fake guns. One of them had a flashlight tape to it, a small flashlight tape to the side of it. And guess what? That instrument or that toy gun was the exact one that was in a picture that was sent to the San Francisco Chronicle reporter when he said, hey, I'm the one that did this kidnapping. We, it, she, they really, there really was a kidnapping. So right there, obviously, you saw that the case was made. And I don't know if he ended up confessing or what happened, but he took a deal. He ended mm-hmm. up, I think, pleading guilty and was sentenced to, to 40 years. So that yeah, kind of wraps years. up 40 years. That kind of wraps mm-hmm. up the end of it pretty quick. But what, what else in that last section Mark, and with all the other reporting that you saw on this story, as we wrap it up, like what have we missed in other reporting about this story, about how incredible this story was and what these young people went through, who, by the way, did what everyone's told to do. Go to the police. Mm-hmm. They did. Be truthful with the police. Be honest with the police. They did. Almost to a fault. I mean, even when, even when Denise got into detail about her sexual assault and how you know, she told the police officers that he told me that it had to look consensual. I mean, what a horrible thing for her to even have to relive and contemplate. And then to see in like the final FBI reporting or the criminal complaint, 
for them to put in there that there was no evidence of a sexual assault. Yeah. I mean, you know? it's, oh, by the way, and we didn't even touch on that because that turned out to be forensically untrue. Later on, mm -hmm. they actually, they finally did. The, the lawyer, her lawyers once said, we have to get a rape kit done on you mm -hmm. immediately. And sure enough, the evidence showed that she had been. What it, it, it boils down to is this, in, from my point of view, Bill, is that the initial suspicion on the part of the Vallejo Police Department that this story didn't add up is understandable. The initial, mm -hmm. we all have initial impressions. I mean, all of us do, whether you're in law enforcement or not. But the point is that law enforcement is expected to investigate and to be objective. And quite frankly, when it, when it has to be patient. And Vallejo PD did not sus subscribe to any of those requirements as far as I'm concerned, as far as law enforcement, and especially near the end of what we talked about today, when there was substantial information available to, available to them that they didn't even look for. Again, if you have a claim of sexual assault by a would-be victim, one of the first things you do after getting a statement, getting as much information as you can, is to get on your own computer and find out, are there any similar circumstances in not only my city, but in the vicinity, in the region? Are there any things, any elements of a crime from other cases that line up with the information I got from this would-be victim? And they didn't do that. And had they done that, it may have taken them in a totally different direction. It may have solved this case much sooner. That's my take on it. Again, no one's perfect. I get that. I understand this is a, is a crazy story at first glance. But sorry, that's why you're supposed to be a detective, investigator, and objective and do your job. And they didn't. Yeah, and I know, Mark, we have a lot of law enforcement officers that that probably watch this show, listen to this show, and also your show, your Leo Nation. And what's a little, so th there was a lawsuit, of course, Denise and Aaron filed a lawsuit. It settled out of court for $2.5 million. It sounds to me like my, with my experience in civil suits, firsthand experience, that sounds a little light. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. It, it sounds like for what way they went through, the case was probably worth a little more than that, but God bless them. They just wanted to be done with it and move on. There was accusations, at least in the, now just to talk about one quick thing with leadership and then one quick thing with uh, the, the lead detective there, there was accusations, at least in the documentary that the chief of police made a derogatory statement about Denise. And basically before one of the press conferences, said something to the effect of, hey, burn her. In other words, like, we don't believe her story, burn her. Inappropriate, right? It's totally inappropriate for the leadership of a department. And of course, now, in his defense, he denied it at deposition. They showed a clip mm -hmm. from his deposition. By the way, I it. saw that clip. It didn't look like he was really believing in what he was saying at the deposition. No, I agree with you. Listen, somebody, whether it was the lieutenant who came up with that on his own or someone in leadership that told him, completely inappropriate to, to make that statement. It serves, you know what that statement is? Ego. That statement is totally. ego. P Bill, you're going to say it. Ego. It yeah. was totally unnecessary. It serves yeah. no purpose. It's, Even if it was proven they made this up, it's not professional to say burn them because what you're saying is 
I don't care what the facts are, go ahead and nail them. Right. It just, there's no need, there's no benefit to the law enforcement agency or, or that department to do that. The, the lead detective, I think his name was Matt Mustard, he actually received the Officer of the Year Award for 2015. I'm not really sure how that yeah. worked. Mark, here's what I can see. I can see someone that's closed a lot of cases successfully, that's done a lot of complex cases, and you get caught up. If there's people watching and listening to this, no matter what line of work you're in, you have to stay humble. Don't yes. get too caught up in yourself that you're that the answers to everything, because sooner or later, you're going to be wrong. And when you are, it could, and, and if, and when that time comes, not if, when that time comes that you are wrong, if you handle it like this, you're going to cause a lot of harm to people. Recognize that you have to stay humble, stay humble, don't get tunnel vision, and confirmation bias is a real thing. One of the craziest stories I've ever heard in law enforcement, Mark, did it work out in the end? Not really. It, it, hey, the case was solved. But it ruined it, the, the reputation of a police department is in tatters, as it should be. And these two young people had their lives turned upside down. And even after the settlement, I'm sure they still deal with, with some of the stuff years later. So that's it, Mark. American Nightmare, it truly was. Thanks, everybody, for uh, listening. And we'll see you next week.